Friends, please take your Bibles and turn to John chapter 13. John chapter 13. I'll be reading for us this remarkable account of our Lord Jesus. John chapter 13, beginning in verse 1 down to verse 17. This is what Holy Scripture says. Now before the feast of the Passover, when Jesus knew that his hour had come to depart out of this world to the Father, having loved his own who were in the world, he loved them to the end. During supper, when the devil had already put it into the heart of Judas Iscariot, Simon's son, to betray him, Jesus knowing that the Father had given all things into his hands and that he had come from God and was going back to God, rose from supper. He laid aside his outer garments and taking a towel, tied it around his waist. Then he poured water into a basin and began to wash the disciples' feet and to wipe them with the towel that was wrapped around him. He came to Simon Peter who said to him, Lord, do you wash my feet? Jesus answered him, what I am doing you do not understand now, but afterward you will understand. Peter said to him, you shall never wash my feet. Jesus answered him, if I do not wash you, you have no share with me. Simon Peter said to him, Lord, not my feet only, but also my hands and my head. Jesus said to him, the one who has bathed does not need to wash except for his feet, but is completely clean. And you are clean, but not every one of you. For he knew who was to betray him. That is why he said, not all of you are clean. When he had washed their feet and put on his outer garments and resumed his place, he said to them, do you understand what I have done to you? You call me teacher and Lord, and you are right, for so I am. If I then, your Lord and teacher, have washed your feet, you also ought to wash one another's feet. For I have given you an example that you also should do just as I have done to you. Truly, truly, I say to you, a servant is not greater than his master, nor is a messenger greater than the one who sent him. If you know these things, blessed are you if you do them. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Please. There's something transformative about being served by another person. Think back to the last time someone brought you a surprise cup of Starbucks or snowblowed your driveway after a major snowfall. Not only were you filled with so much gratitude, but you likely found that that act of service was actually infectious. Something very, very powerful happens when we're served. Depending on the magnitude of service, it's not uncommon for those who have been served to go on through their day 
through the month, maybe even through the rest of their lives, going about serving others because they've first been served. I mean, how many films are there about the young delinquent boy who after going through such a hard struggle is impacted by the basketball coach or a high school teacher and then later on in his life, he himself becomes a high school teacher or a basketball coach, all because someone else served him. This is the transformative power of service. Those who have been served become servants themselves. And there is no greater servant than the Lord Jesus Christ. Jesus himself said in Mark 10, 35, For even the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve, and to give his life as a ransom for many. Jesus would say on the night on which he would be captured and eventually crucified, he would say, the kings of the Gentiles, the rulers of the nations, they lord over their people. But I am one among you as a servant. And then he goes on to say, If you desire to be great, if you desire to be like me, then you yourself are to act as I'm acting. You yourself are to become a servant. Brothers and sisters, Jesus Christ came into the world to serve us and in turn to turn us into servants. In this beautiful passage of scripture in John chapter 13, we see the Lord Jesus acting out this life of service in washing his disciples' feet. And in this text, we will find for ourselves the foundation for your service, for my service, for our service as a church. That foundation is this, that Jesus has served us. And then we'll see what our response should be. It is that we are now to serve each other. So keep your Bible open to John chapter 13. Turn your attention there with me now. And as you do, consider where we find ourselves in the pages of the scriptures. The book of John stands out from the rest of the gospel accounts in that it portrays Jesus with this singular goal in mind, with this thesis statement that John records in John 20, 31. John is writing with the aim of convincing his readers, his listeners, even us today, that Jesus, in fact, is the divine son of God and that by believing in Jesus, We can have eternal life. Up to this point in the book, Jesus has performed miracle after miracle, sign after sign, and yet few people have believed in him. All the while, he's been proclaiming that he is the Messiah, and yet few people have chosen to follow him. And in fact, the religious leaders have only increased in murderous hatred towards him. In John 13, we pick up as Jesus has just concluded his public ministry and is preparing to give his final words to his disciples during this, his final Passover meal on earth. All of this takes place in a portion of scripture known as the upper room discourse, which spans from John 13 all the way to John 17 and takes place in a room, an upper room area. Just a few hours from this scene, the Lord Jesus Christ will be brutalized. He will be crucified, and on the third day, he will rise. But before all of that happens, 
We look at John 13, verses 1 to 17. And this brings us firstly to this, the foundation of service. Jesus has served us. The foundation of service, Jesus has served us. We'll spend the majority of our time looking at this point in these first 11 verses because understanding how Jesus has served you is what will motivate you to serve others. So we'll spend the majority of our time in verses 1 to 11. The opening three verses of this passage give us major details to help us understand how significant this foot washing really was. Look at your Bible. Look at verse 1. John says here, now before the feast of the Passover... He shows us that all of that, all that is to take place now is during the week of the Passover, the Jewish feast commemorating God's rescue of the Israelites from Egyptian captivity by killing every firstborn Egyptian child and passing over every Jewish home that was covered in the blood of a lamb. Soon Jesus himself will be the ultimate substitutionary Passover lamb to rescue his people from their sins. The passage keeps going. When Jesus knew that his hour had come to depart out of this world to the Father. The hour? What hour? The time of his crucifixion. The moment Jesus had been anticipating all of his life. When he would fulfill the mission of God. And dying, rising, and ascending again back to heaven. The text keeps going, having loved his own who were in the world, he loved them to the end. John tells us that Jesus had lived his entire life in love, love specifically to his people. And even in these last moments, he will love his people in the greatest way in the cross, but even he will love them in the small ways, in the mundane ways even as we'll see. Verse 2 says, during supper, when the devil had already put into the heart of Judas Iscariot, Simon's son, to betray him. We find here that Judas was a chameleon, a backstabber in disguise, all the while being close to Jesus, chosen by Jesus. And yet, he never truly loved Jesus in his heart. His heart was captured by the love of money. There was no room for the love of Jesus in his heart. His heart was captured by all sorts of evils. And as such, Satan could influence him to become the greatest traitor of all time. We know that because in John 12, verse 6, it tells us about how Judas had been pilfering, embezzling from the joint bank account of the disciples. And yet still consider what we already read. Jesus was going to wash this man's feet. This very same man influenced and eventually indwelt by Satan, Jesus would wash his feet. And then finally, look at verse 3. Jesus, knowing that the Father had given all things into his hands and that he had come from God and was going back to God. John tells us that Jesus had received all authority, all power. He had the greatest strength, the greatest might, and he was soon to return back to his Father God in heaven. John records all of this information for us so that verses 4 and 5 would come across just as jaw-dropping as they actually are. Look at the text of Scripture. Look at verses 4 and 5 of John 13. 
Speaking of Jesus, Jesus rose from supper. He laid aside his outer garments and taking a towel, tied it around his waist. Then he poured water into a basin and began to wash the disciples' feet and to wipe them with the towel that was wrapped around him. In a shocking display of lowliness, Jesus proceeds to derobe, to get down on his knees and to wash his disciples' feet. Now we need to keep in mind that in the first century, your feet would become quickly grimy and dirty because you walked everywhere and you were wearing open-toed sandals. And as such, whenever you would arrive at somebody's home for a meal, it was the duty of the, of the host to arrange for your feet to be washed before you reclined at the dinner table. And yet this task was so low, so menial, that it was reserved for non-Jewish slaves. This is the type of task that you'd see on an episode of like Dirty Jobs. This was not glamorous, this was nothing to be lauded. It was incredibly lowly. If there were no servants available or no host, as in the case of the disciples gathering in this rented upper room, the custom was likely that the first few guests to arrive were to take on the role of foot washer for the rest of the group. And all of this was presumably to take place before you sat down, lied down, reclined to eat. And yet here we have in our text Jesus and his disciples, they're well into a Passover meal, which would last for a number of hours, and the Son of God stands up to do this degrading task. Jesus stands up to serve. We're left to ask, why hadn't Philip or Andrew done this? Why hadn't Thomas or Matthew done this? Why hadn't any of the other disciples taken it upon themselves to serve? Our passage doesn't say the reason explicitly, and yet it should not surprise us what the reason is based on what Jesus will go on to say. The reason is pride. Pride. Pride had caused each of these men to chafe at the idea of descending so low so as to serve and wash his fellow disciples' feet. Pride. I wonder, is there a root of pride in your life today that is hindering you from serving others? Pride. In fact, in Luke's account of this same Passover meal in chapters 22, chapter 22, verses 24 to 27, the passage I referred to earlier, at some point in the evening during this very same Passover meal, perhaps even seconds before Jesus gets down to do this work, the disciples are arguing amongst themselves about who is the greatest, about which of them is the best follower of Jesus. It is this kind of pride which leads each man to prefer to remain in his own filth and to leave his brothers to do the same than to condescend to serve others. And yet, brothers and sisters, look at our Savior in this text. There is no pride in Jesus. In Jesus, there is no ounce of self-preservation. There is no desire to save face in Jesus Christ the servant of the Lord. No, Jesus stands up from his position of preeminence at the table 
and takes off his outer clothing and does what no one else can or is willing to do. Jesus humbles himself to the point of foot washing. And after completing his work, returns to the position of prominence at the table. Does that sound familiar to you? If it does, it's because Christ's act of foot washing mirrors the theological truth of his humiliation and exaltation in Philippians chapter 2, verses 5 to 11, which speaks of how Jesus, though he was fully God, emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Therefore God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow, in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord, to the glory of God the Father. Saints, it should be no surprise to us that Jesus would stoop so low to clean, dirty feet, for he stooped even lower to die for you. He stooped even lower to die for us. Well, the idea of Christ, someone of Christ's stature, acting as a slave was overwhelming. It was too much for Peter to handle at the very least. And despite Christ's remark that Peter and the rest would understand all of this after Jesus' death and resurrection, Peter resists Christ's attempt to serve him. Look at your Bible. Peter says in verse 6, he came to Simon Peter who said to him, Lord, do you wash my feet? Jesus answered him, what I am doing, you do not understand now, but afterward you will understand, pointing towards after his death and resurrection. Peter's response, Peter said to him, you shall never wash my feet. Now, at this point, we can't help but sympathize with Peter. Well-meaning but misguided Peter. You have to love Peter, don't you? He kind of puts his foot in, the mouth, in his mouth at this moment. He speaks out of turn. He says, Jesus, you're not going to wash me. And we understand where he's coming from. He has this great love, this great reverence for his master, for his rabbi. And as such, he wants to protect the dignity of Jesus. Peter's response is like that of a butler who sees his king taking out the trash and runs over to say, no, your highness. No, 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 you should not be doing this. This is beneath you. This is degrading. No, your highness. But Jesus' response to Peter's resistance is remarkable. Look again at verse 8. Peter said to him, you shall never wash my feet. Jesus answered him, if I do not wash you, you have no share with me. If I do not wash you, you have no share with me. Jesus speaks definitively here. He says, I must wash you or else you are not a part of me. I must wash you 
or else you have no association with me. You have no identification with me nor the blessings and benefits that are associated with knowing me. Peter, I must wash you or else. What is Jesus doing here? Is he stating that each person needs to physically be washed, have their feet physically washed by him in order to truly be a Christian? No. Rather, Jesus, the teacher without equal, has just seamlessly switched from speaking about physical washing to a spiritual washing. He's gone from speaking about a physical foot washing to speaking about a spiritual heart washing, soul washing. He does what he did to Nicodemus in John chapter 3 when he uses physical birth to speak of the need of a spiritual birth. He does what he did in John chapter 6 when he's speaking about physical bread to now speak about himself as spiritual bread. Here Jesus is using a physical analogy to depict spiritual reality. A physical analogy being used to depict spiritual reality. And in answer to Peter's refusal to be physically washed, Jesus will demonstrate the necessity of being spiritually washed in order to associate with him. Now pause for a moment. Think about what Jesus has just said. Jesus has said, if I do not wash you, if I do not wash you. Now these words imply, and they're true for all people, for us included, these words imply that there's a need for washing. That Peter has a need of being washed. That you and I have a need of being washed. But you don't wash something that's already clean, right? No one grabs their dirty dishes from the sink, meticulously washes them until they're sparkling, and then puts them in the dishwasher. You don't do that. No one painstakingly washes their car by hand and waxes them, waxes their car, and then proceeds to drive to Petro-Canada to go through the car wash. No, you don't wash something that's already clean. You only wash something that's dirty. You only wash something that's filthy, something that's soiled. What we gather here is that each of us, in the eyes of God, is dirty. Each of us in the eyes of the Lord is filthy because of our sin. Because of the first Because of the sin of our first parents, Adam and Eve, every member of the human race has been tainted with a rebellious sin nature that causes us to act, to think, and to speak in ways that are corrupt and unclean. We lie. We commit adultery. We steal. We're proud. We're self-centered all because we are sinful people, all because we are defiled people. The scripture tells us that the God of the universe is holy, perfect, and pure. So pure, in fact, that the prophet Habakkuk speaks and says that God is too pure, too holy, that he cannot tolerate or accept dirty people. Habakkuk 1.13. 
And as such, each member of the human race stands before God condemned. Each member of the human race, all of us here, stands before God deserving of divine judgment. All because we are sinned, sin-stained sinners. What can be done for people like us? What can be done for people like us who are so, so dirty in the eyes of God? The only thing that can be done for us is for a cleansing to happen. The only thing and the only one who can do this cleansing is God himself. We need to be washed and God is willing to wash us. We need to be cleansed and God has sent his son Jesus to serve us, to wash us. Brothers and sisters, this is the truth of why Jesus came into the world, to serve us. Jesus has come to serve us. He came to live a perfect, sinless life, to die on the cross in our place and to rise again so that if we would turn to him in repentance and believe in him, we would be made clean. If you're a Christian here today, this is what has happened to you. This is what has taken place in your very life. You were once muddied by sin, but as it says in 1 Corinthians chapter 6, verse 11, you were washed, you were sanctified, you were justified. In the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of our God, people of God, you are clean. Saints of God, today you are clean. All because of what Jesus has done, all because of the work that Jesus has accomplished. Brothers and sisters, we're clean. Like it says in that beautiful hymn, Jesus paid it all. All to him I owe. Sin had left a crimson stain, but he washed it white as snow. Jesus has done the work. What can wash away our sins? Nothing but the blood of Jesus. Nothing but the sacrifice, the work of Jesus Christ. This is the only foundation for the Christian life. This is the only foundation for the life of service. It is that Jesus has come and he has served us. If you have not yet turned to Jesus, what are you waiting for? If you've not yet come to Jesus for the forgiveness of your sins, what are you waiting for? Only Christ can cleanse you of your filth. Only Jesus can wash you, and he is willing to do that. He has come into the world to serve you. All of this rich spiritual teaching is contained in the words, if I do not wash you, you have no share with me. And yet... Our passage shows us that, again, lovable Peter and likely the rest of the group don't get it. <laughs> After all that, that jam-packed phrase, they don't get it. Look at Peter's remark in verse 9. Simon Peter said to him, Lord, not my feet only, but also my hands and my head. Peter here is still thinking Jesus is talking about a physical washing. And so he says, well, if I need to be washed to be a part of you, then not just my feet, my whole body. Give me a whole bath. Again, <laughs> I feel like Peter. I wonder if you feel like Peter at times too. He wants, he loves Jesus so much, but he's not getting it. He's not understanding. And yet, thankfully, our 
our master, our Lord Jesus, takes this as an opportunity to provide more spiritual clarity. Look at verse 10. Jesus said to him, the one who has bathed does not need to wash except for his feet, but is completely clean. And you are clean, but not every one of you. Jesus here distinguishes between an entire bathing and the washing of feet. What Jesus is getting at is that a one-time spiritual bath is necessary to begin the Christian life, while a frequent spiritual foot washing is necessary for the remainder of the Christian life. I'll say that again. A one-time spiritual bath is necessary to begin the Christian life, while a frequent spiritual foot washing is necessary for the remainder of the Christian life. You see, when you place your faith in Jesus, you are instantaneously cleansed and saved from your sin. That's the one-time spiritual bath. But as we live our lives as Christians in a fallen world, with a sinful flesh within us, with the devil without tempting us, we will commit sins. We will, as it were, step into sin. Up until the day we enter into heaven, we will step into sins of omission and commission. In that sense, our feet will get dirty. But friends, our status remains secure. Our feet will get dirty. Our feet get dirty, but our status remains secure. Though we fall short and get grime and filth on our feet, our relationship with sin and with God is categorically different than it previously was. Whereas before, we were rebels against the king. We defied him blatantly. We, we enjoyed living in the muck of sin. Now we have become children of the king. Now we are those who are filled with contrition and godly remorse when we realize that we've not lived in accordance with the will of our God, with the will of our Father. As children of the king, we don't revel in our sin. No, when we fail, we go to our Father and immediately receive the restoration and forgiveness that he offers the restoration and forgiveness that he gives to us freely because we're already part of the royal family and because he loves us. So then, brothers and sisters, what should you do when you sin? What should you do when you realize you've failed again? Maybe for the, the sixth time in one day. What, what, what should you do when you've sinned? You should go to Jesus, the cleansing servant, and have your feet washed by him. When you sin, go to Jesus and have your feet again washed. Practice what Jesus taught us to do in Matthew chapter 6 when he taught us how to pray. He said, and forgive us our debts as we forgive our debtors. Practice what it says in 1 John chapter 1 verses 8 and 9. Don't hide your sin, confess your sin. It says there, if we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves, and the truth is not in us. Verse 9 says this, if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Don't hide your sins, confess your sins. 
John would go on to say in 1 John chapter 2, verses 1 and 2, that he's writing all of these things to us in order that we would not sin. God doesn't want us to sin. But then he goes on to say that if we do sin, we have an advocate. That if we do sin, when we do fail, we have an advocate, Jesus Christ the righteous, who has made propitiation for the sins of the world, who has made a sacrifice, an atoning sacrifice for his people. Therefore, when you sin, people of God, don't run from God, run to God. Run to God and confess your sins. This is the reason why when we're gathered as a church, as an assembled people of God, when we participate in corporate confession, that should be one of the most Cherish parts of the service to you because we're practicing what Jesus has taught us to do, to go to him, not to act, not to fake, not to hide, but to go to him because he loves us and he will wash us again daily. He will wash our feet. People of God, confess your sins regularly. Confess your sins often. Admit your faults to God and live in the grace of forgiveness all because Jesus has and continues to serve you. Jesus has and he continues to serve you. But notice that this cleansing is only for those who have received Christ's act of service on the cross. Again, verse 10. Jesus said to him, the one who has bathed does not need to wash except for his feet, but is completely clean. And you are clean, but not every one of you. Verse 11, for he knew who was to betray him. And that was why he said, not all of you are clean. Though Jesus had outwardly washed each disciple's feet, Judas was the one who still remained inwardly unclean. Christ sees deep into each person's heart. And he knows those who truly belong to him. Friend, you cannot fool God. You cannot deceive or trick the God who sees and knows everything. If you think that you can continue to live a double life, a life of hypocrisy, and get away with it, know that God sees and know that there's a day of reckoning that is coming. Therefore, stop playing games. Stop playing charades. Stop acting. Go to Jesus and receive the purification that he freely gives to you. Experience the one-time spiritual bath and the daily foot washing, spiritual foot washing that he offers to you. So far in these first 11 verses, Jesus has pointed us to the spiritual symbolism of the foot washing. Now, He'll show us its physical significance, how his followers then and now are to imitate his pattern of service. Look at verses 12 to 14 with me. Look at your Bible. John 13, 12 to 14 says this. When he had washed their feet and put on his outer garments and resumed his place, he said to them, do you understand what I've done to you? You call me teacher and Lord, and you are right, for so I am. If I then, your Lord and teacher, have washed your feet, you also ought to wash one another's feet. 
Jesus says, if I've done it for you, now you are to do it to each other. This leads us to our final point, the response of service. The response of service. Now we are to serve each other. Now we are to serve each other. Jesus' reasoning here is straightforward and convicting. He's saying, if I am first in rank amongst the 13 of us, and I am washing your feet, you who are nowhere near as prestigious as me should be doing the same for each other. In other words, Jesus is saying, if, it, if I'm not too important to serve you guys, then you're not too important to serve each other. Church, the same is true for us as well. Jesus, will not, Jesus was not too good to wash dirty feet and to die for dirty sins. If this is the case, what is there that we should not be willing to do for each other? Grace Fellowship Church, the answer is nothing. There should be nothing that we're unwilling to do for one another. Because of what Jesus has done for each of us individually, we should be a people who devote ourselves to serving each other, to loving and caring for the people of God and the world. In light of this, ask yourself, what excuse do you have for not serving the people around you? What excuse are you using for not serving those around you? If you're like me, your natural reaction when you hear this is to focus on all the reasons, all the things you can't do, all the ways that you are inhibited or providentially restricted from serving. But look at what Jesus says in verse 15. Jesus says, for I've given you an example that you also should do just as I have done to you. The key word here is example. Jesus' point for us today is not that we would go around literally washing each other's feet. For one, foot washing was a cultural practice which would not translate into our Canadian context today since our feet are generally covered all the time, most of the time, and most of us have the ability to take care of and clean our feet frequently, even to the point of luxury and things like pedicures and foot massages. No, the point is not that we go around literally washing each other's feet. The point is that we imitate the spirit and heart of service of Jesus. The point is that we imitate the spirit and heart of service which Christ exemplifies. Saints, an act, an act of service could be anything you are able to do to the glory of God and to the benefit of another. Anything that you could do to the glory of God and for the benefit of another person. Jesus' service in this text was a physical bodily act. But his example, his example of taking loving initiative, his example of doing a task which no one else wanted to do, his example of serving his disciples as well as serving an unsaved, Satan-inspired betrayer. This example can be used and applied to whatever you are able to do for others, to the glory of God and for their good. Therefore, don't focus on what you can't do. Focus on what God has made you capable of doing and on the opportunities in front of you. 
Are you handy? Then why not reach out to the deacons and find out how they can help you put your hammer and saw to work for the good of the church? Has God given you musical talent or technological know-how? Why not notify Ali of your desire to serve the congregation in leading musical worship and helping with the soundboard? Has the Lord granted you grace and strength in prayer? Why not pray through the membership directory monthly? Why not pray for the shut-ins of our church? Why not pray for our missionaries abroad? Why not serve the church by praying weekly that the preached word would go forth and bear fruit? Are you aware of members in our church who are suffering through illness or grieving the loss of a loved one? Why not make it a point to visit them every few weeks as you're able? Are you a mother with small children who knows of other mothers in your neighborhood who may be struggling with loneliness? Why not start a mother's support group and show these women the love of Christ through fostering community and by telling them about Jesus Christ? Friend, do you want to serve these very same mothers of children and families with young children? Why not serve in the early years program and tell little ones about Jesus? The possibilities for serving are endless. And the amazing thing is that God has thoroughly equipped every Christian for the work of serving. The Spirit of God has given every believer spiritual gifts for the express purpose of doing good to each other. Therefore, as you begin to live out a life of service, do so according to 1 Peter chapter 4, verses 10 and 11, which says this. As each has received a gift, use it to serve one another. As good stewards of God's varied grace, whoever speaks as one who speaks oracles of God, whoever serves as one who serves by the strength that God supplies, in order that in everything God may be glorified through Jesus Christ, to him be glory and dominion forever and ever. Amen. Church, serve in total reliance upon God. Serve in such a way that God would get the glory and people would worship the king all because of your life, all because of your good works, all because of your life of service. Jesus ends this section in verses 16 and 17 with these words. Truly, truly, I say to you, a servant is not greater than his master, nor is a messenger greater than the one who sent him. He's reiterating what he'd already said in verse 14, the argument of the lesser to the greater. If I'm as great, if a message sender and the master is doing something, then the servant and the messenger should be doing the same. And then he says these words. If you know these things, blessed are you if you do them. If you know all that I've said, if you understand and then practice what I've just said, blessed are you if you do them. I love that Jesus expects that knowledge must translate into action. Knowledge must translate into action. For him, it's not enough that his listeners would nod their head in agreement. They actually have to put what they've heard into action. We actually have to put what we've heard into action. Brothers and sisters, all that is left to say now is get to serving, 
and reap the blessing. Get to serving and reap the blessing. The bottom line of what Jesus has said now is that if you serve because you've been served, you will be blessed. So the question is, will you listen to Jesus? Will you heed the words of your king? He loves you and has proved it by serving you when you could not serve yourself. And now he invites you to the blessed life. Now he invites you to a life of servanthood. I hope you'll accept his invitation. Let's pray. Lord Jesus Christ, we worship you. We give you the glory because there's no one like you. You have served us in the greatest way. And now we're praying by your Holy Spirit, help us to respond as we ought. Help us to be a people of love and action towards one another and towards the world around us. We ask all of this for your glory and fame, Jesus. Amen.